Hello, hello, and welcome to Spinning a Yarn's Tail, the podcast about fiber arts history and culture, brought to you by you and I in Chehalis, Washington. My name's Denise. My name's Blair. And today, we are talking about something a little bit different, maybe? A little bit. We're gonna be t- we're gonna be chatting about null binding, or if you say it right, it's null bi- null, null binding. binding. Yeah, null, null binding. binding. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm I'm an American, <laughs> so I go. Let's talk about null binding. <laughs> so yep, that's fair. But yeah, if you want to say it right, it's I think it's, it's null, null binding. binding. Yeah. So. Like that. I'm going to be saying it wrong, and I'm so sorry. Well, in 2018, they coined the term null binding yeah. for English people. Yeah. So it's okay. Okay, We cool. can say null binding. It was gentrified. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it, was, um, it was made a little easier for us. For, for us Americans. For us Americans. Um, but what are you working on this What week? am I working on this week? So I'm working on my... It is called... Sunshine on the Path. Oh. Which is a shawl and it's got little flowers on it. And it's been my run out of the house screaming because the lace is really easy to remember. So I can just work on it a lot. Um, Plus, I don't have any socks going outside of a pair that are pretty difficult to to work on and pay attention to. Um, But, oh, and I've been working on my my Hopi sweater. (gasps) Yay. Yeah, I picked that up again. I I had stopped right when I had like attached the sleeves and got about like this much color work done, which is in a, like an Aaron weight is two rows of yeah. color work. Yeah. And I held up my fingers for everyone else and I it was like about an inch. <laughs> <laughs> and I have I've put about six inches on it at yeah. this point. Oh so. good. But yay much. Yeah. Getting getting there. Getting there. For summer. <laughs> yeah, this warm <laughs> color work sweater for summer. I'm so sorry, Meg. Just in time. Yeah. Just in time. But it it's it's been a really fun experience and I've been talking to people a lot about the uh the color work ring that I use. Nice. Because I it's just the clover one, the plastic one, but it's my oh, yeah. favorite one because I find the metal ones when I'm doing, because I knit Norwegian, that means I knit continental, except I don't hold up my finger. Yeah, who does that? No, nobody. I can't hold up my finger. Meg Meg knits like this, the owner of the store. I can't. Um, But I knit Norwegian with my finger down. Continental with the finger down is Norwegian. And those rings, the metal ones, they would get stuck on my floats and on my stitches. Oh, yeah. So, like... I got the the plastic one, and it's a little like it looks like a ring pop ring, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then on top, it's got this little mechanism where basically you click it open, and there's little pegs that separate out your yarn, and you put your yarn in between the pegs, separated. So like one color here, one color here. You close it, and then you you I can knit my color work like that. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah, it's really nice. That's way nicer than struggling and having balls everywhere. And and I like it better than two-handed color work because the floats are easier yeah. to catch. Yeah. Because I was talking with a customer. Her name is Jeannie. And she's a delight. She used to work at NASA. 
Um, yeah. She does two-color, two-hand color work, and she catches her floats. And I was like, I learned that way, but I could never stop it from showing up on the front of my work. Yeah. So my floats, when I did it the way she did it, two-handed, would always be on the front of my work, and it was annoying. Yeah. So, but what about you? What have you been working on? Um, I am still working on the embroidery for the baby, but I have also picked up my spinning. Woo! Finally. What are you um, spinning? I don't know what it is. <laughs> oh, oh, no. <laughs> it's red and yellow. Oh, sick. <laughs> um, no, it's terrible. I don't. I don't remember. I got it at the Flock and Fiber. Oregon Flock and Fiber? Yeah. So it was like this big sale that had going on. And I can feel that it was a sale item because it's kind of... Is it kind of felted? There's like little... What do you call them again? The little nubs in it? The neps, yeah. It's pretty neppy. Yeah, so it's really kind of annoying to spin, but I've set my mind to it, so I want to spin it. Um, but it took me about a half year to let go of the notion of a certain gauge and a certain like aesthetic that I wanted for it. Now I just want to spin it and get it done. And off your wheel. Yeah. Yeah, I So whatever that. it's going to look like, I don't know. I have a few but, yarn. I have a few few fibers like that. Yeah, you just uh, gotta do it. One Rambouillet color that I felt like I spun forever, and I was like, "Get out of yeah. here! I'm so sick of you. Yeah, <laughs> Get away!" Yeah, it gets kind of tiring after a while. Yeah, um, but it's it's fun because there's like patches of red, and then there's like a soft pink almost, and then there's like a mustardy yellow. So it's kind of kind of nice to see mm. the variation um that sounds nice yeah i'm it's also just a the big fiber. mustard girl i know me too i love the color mustard, mustard. yellow Ugh. burnt burnt orange mustard yellow Ooh. oh my god brown i'm so boring <laughs> <laughs> me too <laughs> those are like my favorite colors um I'm, but yeah i'm not a bright rainbow gal not no a just a subdued mustardy down to earth earth tones colors. give me earth tones yes now that we've got that out of the way um should we move into what we're talking about today yeah we're talking like we said before null binding null binding um where does null binding start well the earliest found piece that we have was actually discovered in syria and that dated back to around 6000 bce or ce and was uh, it was a mesh mesh sieve or sieve made from plant material, and it was pretty cool. But then also, on another note, the first thing that we as a uh, as humanity discovered, <laughs> the first null binding piece that we ever discovered was ni- in 1933, and that was also from Syria. And it dated back to about 250 AD. Okay, so that's a lot later. Yeah. So the first piece we found was 250 AD, but we have found pieces earlier than Early, that yeah. in Syria. But obviously, null binding can be found just about anywhere. It was found in um, a lot in the Middle East, and it was also found a lot in Europe. Like yeah. Like a ton of it. 
Yeah. There is also evidence of it being used, found in, in China. Um, so to give specific things, uh, the first piece we ever found that came from 250 AD, it was believed it was a sock because when they folded it out, it had a heel cup. Mm. So it, was, it had a place for a heel. Um, and it was also mistaken for knitting because a lot of null binding can actually be mistaken for knitting. The stitches are really similar. Yeah. But it's not knitting. And we'll get into that later. It's null binding. It's null binding. Um, there was, for, in Europe, there was, uh, the technique dates back to about 6,000 years and is documented in Europe. Uh, Europe about 4,000 years ago. But we have found pieces that are a little bit older. Yeah. Um, There was a fishing net that was found in Denmark that dates to about 10,000 to 8,000 BC. (laughs) So pretty old. Yeah. Um, In Egypt, it was pretty popular, and specifically with the Coptic Christians. Um, In Egypt, around the 4th century, they were making socks. Um, they were loosely fitted socks to wear with flip-flops or AKA like thongs, um, or sandals. Are these the socks that we talked about so many weeks ago with the flip-flops and the stocks and socks? And (laughs) And in our first episode, um, these are not those exact socks, but they are what those socks are based off of. Oh, yeah. So when people started knitting, they based it off of these null-bound socks. Yeah, and the, they're, like the fit and everything. Yeah, because they have the split in the toe to fit into it like a sandal. And they're called Coptic socks specifically. Okay, that's cool. Because they were made and worn by Coptic Christians, and Maybe. it kind of spread from there. Cool, yeah. Um, and this is kind of happen. This is happening around like the Bronze Age. And like I mentioned, there is also a beret-shaped hat that was found in the Tarim Basin in China around the same time. So this is interesting because did people invent null binding around the same time in different places, or did the technique travel? Two different places is what I'm I think it traveled. And we're talking about like, we're talking about like way, 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 way back through uh, word of mouth and traveling on foot. So yeah, because I guess it was around for a long time. It was around for a long time. So like one example is in the Bronze Age, it was... um, brought to England through a Scandinavian trader who left his socks and taught people how to null bind. And that's how England learned about null binding. Mm. So I think through travel, yeah, it kind of made its way places. Reached different places, yeah. Um, it hit different places at different times, obviously, because we found places... We found it, the earliest bits and pieces in Syria, um, which was, used to be, back at the time that when they're dated to, it used to be Israel. 
Yeah. So right. that is modern day Syria, uh, Syria and past day Israel. Israel. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it really stuck in cold places. So when we're talking about null binding, it comes from everywhere, but it really stuck around in places that where it was like really, really, really cold and really forested and really like mountainous. So the perfect place for it to stick was in kind of the Scandinavian area. Yeah, yeah, in the north. In the north. Um, there's a, a lot of connotation, or connection, not connotation. There's a lot of connection between modern-day people and thinking of null binding as, like, a Viking age yeah. craft. You see that a lot, yeah. But it's actually much older, and it's much more far farly spread out because yeah. it was the craft that came before both crochet and knitting. Yeah. yeah. And it came to places like England and they called it single needle knitting because it looked so much like knitting. Yeah. So that's interesting. But to focus on kind of where it stuck around the longest, it would be in places like Denmark, Sweden, Finland, um, Iceland, all of those cold places. Mm-hmm. And when it was even used well into the era where knitting was already a thing as well, right? Exactly. So null binding stuck around in specifically Finland. It was very popular still until the 19th century. Oh, wow. Yeah. So really, really late. Um, Because there's a saying that was, uh, he who has knit mittens has an unskilled wife. Because they would null bind mittens. (laughs) And... If your wife couldn't null bind, she was unskilled. Yeah. And they treated uh, knit mittens as a lesser product because null bound mittens were so dense and indestructible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just how it was. And we'll get kind of into why it was so indestructible in a little bit. Um, and... It was really popular in these places because it was easier to spin small amounts of thread to null bind with than it was to spin large amounts of like yarn and thread to knit with or crochet with. So you could make, I don't know, you you null bind with a length of thread that's equal to what you kind of would sew with. Yeah. Because null binding is done with a needle. And it's a series of knots, and we'll kind of talk about that in a minute. But you could have, like, the pra- the the traditional or, like, best practice for sewing is something no longer than your arm. Yeah. Because that way you can... Yeah, you're good to go. With every you're stitch. good to go. You're not going to have to go... Uh, and then go back down and pull all of your more, stuff. If you, which is what I do. Yeah. I do too. I'm impatient. I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to have to cut more thread and do more like prep. Just give me like, oh, and then I get really mad when it's tangled. I know. I'm like, why? <laughs> why does this happen to me? Why? Am I a bad person? Yes. Because you're using yes. way more thread than you should be. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. That's my issue too. Um. But in null binding, you didn't have to spin as much. No. Because in, in one go, because you could only use so much. 
And it was optional. So like you could spin a whole spool of wool for yarn to null bind with. But if you had to make like an emergency pair of mittens and you didn't have any wool, you could spin lengths of wool or cotton or whatever you're using to null bind with and then do it as you go. Um, and it is still considered, just to bring this up, totally unrelated. <laughs> it is still called the oldest needled fabric in history. Yeah. Because of how old it is. Yeah. Um, it's older than knitting, older than crochet. No, pr- probably not older than weaving, but like. Yeah, I don't know. But I mean, it's so simple, though. So it's like for weaving, you'd need more than just a needle. And here you're just using your hands in in one needle. But think about basket weaving. How old is basket weaving? Well, that's true. Yeah. So like, and there is an Irish boat that was made from woven um, willow or I think like ash uh, wickets. So like the little thin growth Mm -hmm. and you would use that to weave a boat and then you would use a cowhide on the bottom that's cool yeah i learned about that the other day so weaving's pretty old and it was used for a lot of things yeah um but this (laughs) null binding is considered the oldest needled craft yeah so um and it's kind of an endangered craft kind of going into that these days. Mm-hmm. Um, not a lot of people null bind anymore. And it's kind of going out of like, going out of business is the best way I can say it, I guess, yeah. because people are not null binding anymore. They're not passing along, along the patterns because traditionally null binding wasn't, again, a patterned thing. Mm-hmm. So there is no way to take like an extant pattern and like, yeah, f- upload it to something. People yeah. are not writing up these patterns as much anymore. Yeah, and it's kind of sad. Um, and so, <laughs> but there are people who are working to kind of make it unendangered. So, people are trying to reestablish this heritage craft basically because it's what it is it's a heritage craft it's the oldest the oldest form of making a needled fabric yeah and um there are tons of places that where people are kind of like pushing to have it out there again there are still places in finland convents specifically that will teach people that are staying there how to do null binding that's cool yeah um, there are archaeologists who turned teachers, turned museum, uh, what's the word when they're helping out, but it's only on a case by case basis. Commission? Not commission. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just, the, it, it's <laughs> what that is. Uh, they're kind of helping out on a case by case basis and, um, they're, recreating null bound objects to be put up into museums. So we have these extant pieces that we find and they go in and they look at it and they're like, Oh, this is how it's made and how it would look like. And they make it. And then they take it to the public as well. 
Yeah. One person in particular is called uh, is named Sally Pointer. She's in England. And she travels around the UK teaching people in classes about how to not bind. That's cool. Yeah. And how to read their patterns and things like that. And it's kind of really cool. Yeah, it's it's weird to me how like crochet and knitting have survived and are thriving so much better than null binding because it's it's similar. It you know is similar, but it is also so slow. So mm. it is the slowest out of all of them. Oh. It kind of goes crochet fast, knitting middle, null binding, real slow. Super slow. Real slow. Um so to kind of go into why it's so slow and why it hasn't made it so much, we should probably talk about how null binding is done. Yes. So it is similar to crochet in a lot of ways. Uh, the biggest difference being is that you don't use a hook, but you use a sewing needle. Um, it's not like a sewing needle you and I know. It's kind of dull, more like a tapestry needle, but really, really thick. Yeah. Um, and then you it, use that to make your, your loops. Um, but these sewing needles traditionally were made of bone or wood. So they're big pieces. I want to say they're about the size of my pointer finger. The needles are. <laughs> yeah. They're specifically. Per- yeah. And that's about. Three inches. I want to say two, maybe two and a half. Yeah. And there's, they just kind of taper. So it's more of like a triangle shape than the traditional needle shape. Yeah. They are rounded, but the, there's no like, it goes needle shape and then you have the, the bump for the eye. It's more like you start small and then just get bigger. Yeah. It's and like then a, they carve out the hole like for the eye. Almost like a tear shape, but then. Yeah. Really, kind of. Yeah. yeah really that's kind of, kind of what the, the null binding needles look like. Um, it's worked like crochet again with one active loop. This makes it so it can't unravel because once you finish a loop, that loop is knotted in place because it is a series of really in like the most literal way, knots. Knots, People say, oh, knitting's but just but a bunch of knots. But if you lose a stitch you lose all those knots yeah this is like you tied a knot and now you're moving on to the next knot yeah it would be like tying your shoe into a bow but it's still attached to the other shoe and then going and doing that and like it can't be undone so which is why it's so difficult if you make a mistake with null binding to undo it yeah you have to go through and individually untie these knots you can't just pull the thread and have it unravel like in crochet um you have to go through and like get things undone yeah but that's also why it is indestructible it's like impervious to unwinding so people it would catch on like if you lose one knot you're not losing all of the knots in succession or close to it so it was basically like catch proof 
you're out in the woods doing wood things like chopping down trees or like hunting and your mitten gets caught on a tree branch and tears a little hole in it, your whole glove or mitten's not going to fall apart. Your wife at home is just going to have to mend it. Yeah. Unless it's, she was unskilled. Unless she was unskilled and yeah. knit you a mitten. Terrible wife. This heathen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. It's just, I know to us, it's like, why knitting mittens is so great. Why would you, yeah. why would you hate your wife for it? But in thinking in like the, the grand scheme of yeah. like their lives out there, you don't That's want different. your mitten to fall apart no, when you're out there yeah. in negative 30 degree weather. <laughs> Oof. Oof. That would be, yeah. be terrible. Um, so, going back to kind of where I got off track, <laughs> it's made with one active loop, much like crochet. And what you do is you make tying a series of knots based around your thumb. So you wrap the yarn around your thumb, you grab the stitch before it through like a V. We're going to have a, a, we have a video linked for this so you can kind of watch <laughs> someone do it instead of me poorly explaining it. And then you like pull your needle thread through that and drop it off your thumb and then wrap your thumb again and make another knot. And that's kind of how the whole thing works. And a really skilled person can do this really, really fast, but it's still not as fast as someone who's really, really fast at crochet. Yeah. Or really, really fast at knitting. Yeah. Unfortunately, because of all the movements it is that are involved. a knot every yeah. time. Yeah. You have, with knitting, you have ways of minimizing the movements with your hands, and that cuts time. With null binding, there is nothing like that except to work with a shorter thread. Yeah. And then you have to retie your thread all the time. Yeah, because you're pulling the whole thread through the work kind of yeah. every time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of the way it goes. Um, and like I mentioned, the needles are usually made from bone or hardwood. And it's truly one of the mo most hard wearing and warm crafts out there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It's, it's pretty cool, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know there was still such a world out there that was trying to get it back kind of yeah there's it's it's really crazy because it's considered like i didn't know a craft could be could be considered yeah. endangered yeah me neither but like it's an endangered craft not enough people are doing it please null bind i'm gonna go home and, and i'm gonna learn yeah. how to null bind it, this researching this has made me go like i want to do that yeah. i want to make that because it's kind of cool. Honestly, also, you could use your hand spun, too. I could use my hand yeah. spun, too. <gasps> oh, my God, Denise. <laughs> now I have to go online and buy a null binding needle. Um, yeah, these days you have plastic ones, but if you're the OG... I'm going to get a wood you one. You get bone or wood. Yeah. Come on. Come on. I'm going to get a wood one. But no, no offense to anybody who owns a plastic one. We don't, yes. we don't hate as long people. as you're null binding. As long as you're Otherwise, null binding. Otherwise, we will judge you. Yeah. <laughs> if you're using your null binding you're needle to sew a skirt. For something else? <laughs> oh. Well, imagine sewing a skirt with a null binding needle. That yeah, would that be would awful. Be. <laughs> well, you end up skirt. with like eyelets okay. in every <laughs> stitch instead of actually sewing, sewing a seam. 
Oh, oh that would be terrible. Just mm. awful. And you did some really interesting research on like the stitches themselves. Do you want to kind of fill me in on that? Yeah, well, we'll we'll dig into that a little bit. Um, because what we just talked about, null binding uh, uses your thumb. I'll start off with that. So it uses your thumb to make a stitch or not. Um, there's no real gauge in null binding because everybody's thumb is different. So you can't have like a worsted weight and everybody's getting the same kind of stitch def- or um, gauge uh, in their knots. Um, but there are some patterns out there these days and they're communicated through the Hansen code, which was invented, if you will, by Egon Hansen. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. In the 1990s. Um, and he, so he made up a code where this, the yarn path was, uh, would determine what the stitch was called, if you will. And um, so you have U's and you have O's. Use our um, yarn, the yarns, <laughs> a U means that the yarn is passing under a loop, so U, under, and then um, if the yarn passes over a loop, it's called an O. And so if you, if you start Googling null binding stitches, you'll find a code and you'll be like, is this binary code? Like, what is this computer thing? Or... I, I was like, like, what is happening? Yeah, much like learning to read patterns in yeah. anything. So, like, you look at a knitting chart and you're like, what the heck is happening here? <laughs> yeah. Or if you're reading uh, just a crochet, crochet pattern yeah. and it's like SC3, CH4, <laughs> DC5, and it's like, I don't know what that what means. What is this? <laughs> it's kind of the same thing when we're looking at it. With this Hanson yeah. code. I looked at it and I was like, "This is yeah, I'm going to have Denise explain this. <laughs> I didn't get it. I was like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. So. It, t- like- it took me a little while to figure it out. But um, <laughs> yeah, so you have the U and the O. And then um, if you're also working with a previous row, depending on if you're um, working in the round or not, they there will be indications for F, which is the front of the loop of the previous row stitch that you're using, or B for back of the loop, if that makes sense. Um, oh, yeah. If you think like crochet, when you're working, you can work through the front loop. Yeah. Not the front post, but the front loop. Yeah. Or the back loop. Yeah. Yeah. And that can create a different looking different, stitch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Oh, so that's kind of the same here. Yeah. Um, yes, that is definitely similar. Um, and most basic stitches that the, or the most basic stitch that we know today, if you're going to look up how to null bind, you will probably learn the Oslo stitch. Um, this one seems to be kind of the foundation for all the other stitches too. So all the other stitches seem to build off of this. Um, stitch or are like a variation in some kind of way Um, but what happens is you have one loop around your thumb and one loop behind your thumb 
And so when you're starting out, you make like a figure eight and one is going to be around your thumb and one's going to be um, behind your thumb. And um, you're going to go through the back loop, so the one behind your thumb, and then you're going to go through the front loop, so the one around your thumb, and you're somehow going to knot that together with the working yarn. And I'm not going to explain all of that because I feel like it's not going to be useful. It, it should really be something that you're watching on YouTube or, or yeah, trying Yeah, um, the knot binding tutorial that's going to be linked in the resources in the show notes, that shows an Oslo stitch. Yeah. Yeah, so that's so. a good good one to to check out because uh, the first even the first time I watched the video, I was like, I don't know what is going on, <laughs> but yeah, you really need like a little bit of time. So give yourself a little bit of patience and and, and time to watch these videos because it's it's actually really simple and interesting. Once you figure it out, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so the Oslo stitch will be indicated just to go back to this Hansen code by UO slash UOO. And so that's an indication of going under the back loop and then over the front loop and then you do more funky stuff and then you get the Oslo stitch. <laughs> um, so some of the other popular stitches that we know um, that kind of built off of the Oslo stitch are the finish 2.2 or 2 plus 2 and the finish 1 plus 2 or mammon stitch. So both of these are from Finland. So finish as in Finland-ish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not just finishing. Yeah, not, not finishing. finishing. Yeah. Stitch. It's, it's a, a finish, finish. stitch. <laughs> yeah, um, the mammon stitch was actually found on um, on a grave somewhere, I think, and that's why it's called the mammon stitch because there was a oh the mammon grave site. Yeah, yes, so that's why it's called that. But it's also called the Finnish one plus two because it is um, the Finnish two plus two is under under over over, and the Finnish one plus two is under over over. And then, so, yeah, so reading it, it goes under, under, for the plus, two plus two, it's under, under, over, over, and then under, under, over, over, because there's a slash. Mm-hmm. And then the one plus two is under, over, over, slash, under, under, over, over. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. So they, and the, the two plus two and the one plus two means how many loops there are. So there's... With the two plus two, there's two loops around your thumb and two loops behind your thumb. And mm. on the one plus two, there's only one loop uh, around your thumb, which is the same setup as the also stitch. Okay. But so the finish two plus two has an extra stitch on that thumb, which changes the stitch um, pattern and definition. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, another stitch that we... So all of these stitches are named after the places that they were found at because they're all historical stitches. Um, and the next stitch that is pretty popular is the York stitch. And um, there is one historical example in the Coppergate sock, which was uh, found in York. And that's why it's called the York stitch. And this sock that they found dates back to the 10th century. 
So somebody null bound it back in the 10th century. And now we are, somebody figured out how to do this stitch from this sock. And so now we have the York stitch, which is under, under, slash, over, over, and then over and front loop two. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and again, if you're null binding, it might make more sense to read this code than than just sitting here and listening to it. Um, but they're they're all variations on on null binding stitches. And then the last one I want to mention, because um, there are a few more, but the last one I want to mention is the Coptic stitch. And you already mentioned um, the Coptic socks real quick. Um, so the Coptic stitch is most the most commonly confused stitched stitch with knitting. I feel like my words today. <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, so this is the stitch that looks the most like knitting. The null binding stitch that looks the most like knitting. And um, this is why a lot of samples that have been found or fragments that have been found through uh, archaeologists might be confused with knitting samples, but they're not knitting, they're null binding. Yeah, because really the only way with this stitch that I read to Mm -hmm. find out if it's knitted or if it is null bound is to cut it. Oh, and see and so it, like it's really hard. People don't want to do yeah, that. Yeah, ethically, with, it's like, like oh, you're like, oh no, I found this, but it, and it looks like knitting, but is it not binding? You have to like damage oh. this this extant piece that you've dug up from like a million billion years ago. Not really, but exaggeration. And like that can be so difficult to do. So yeah. a lot of um, old pieces were actually thought to be knitted, like. They were, oh yeah, this is a knitted sock. Yeah. But it's it's not. It's a it's a null bound sock. Because it funny. just looks like knitting. Yeah, and I think the V's go sideways. So if you look at a null bound piece in Coptic stitch, the V's um, if you hold your piece the right side facing you with top top to bottom kind of the V's are going to go from left to right. And in knitting, it's going to be down. Up and down. Yeah, up and down. But people probably used to think that they knit these flat and then sewed up the back. Yeah, exactly. And that would be why it was going Yeah, and specifically because you find fragments. Yeah. You don't find whole, whole um, products mostly. Yeah, And that's the whole thing with archaeology is people are like, oh, people were just smaller back then. Because people find all these tiny, tiny dresses. Yeah. But those were for children. Yeah. Because these pieces that were not worn a lot were oftentimes made for children who would not, who would only wear them like once. Yeah. And grow out of them. Yeah. So it's kind of similar with some of the more fancy like whole pieces that we find. So like we have that almost whole sock. Well, that sock obviously wasn't like something they wore every day with their sandals. Yeah. It was a very special occasion sock. Yeah, because it, it's not worn out or anything. It's not yeah, worn out. Yeah. So you have to kind of think of things like that Yeah. when you're looking at extant pieces. Yeah. And yeah. It's very interesting. It's really interesting. And it's one of those things where I get, I get lost in the sauce looking up like old archaeological digs sometimes. I'm like, oh, 
this is cool. Yeah, yeah. I want to do that. And then I remember I don't have the willpower to be out in the sun for seven, eight hours to be an archaeologist. And go to college for it first. Well, yeah, that too. But... I know. So it's... But these are all, like, things that you can look up. Yeah. The things we've been talking about. Yeah. Um, Specifically the stitches, not, like, the history. I kind of explained things. (laughs) Um, But... Yeah, these these are really interesting to hear about because I looked at that and it kind of was Morse code. But now that yeah, because I watched that Vindi that video we were talking about, and that kind of makes sense now. Yeah, with the code, with the code. Mm-hmm. So really, to understand the code that we've been talking about, please, please watch, watch that it. video. Yeah, just a, even just like the first few like minutes because i think it's only four minutes long yeah so watch like the first minute or something and it's really really helpful in building a base on the information of the stitches that we're talking about so yeah that's that's really cool and what i didn't know from researching this and going on youtube there's a lot of um like reenactors or or people that go to like viking fairs or whatever that that do null binding yeah Yeah. so around here we have an sca so i forget what sca stands for but it's a group of people who do specifically reenacting so we don't have a lot of reenacting that takes place here as far as like the 1700s goes. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of that is going to be really popular over in places like West Virginia or Boston or any, pla- any place on the East Coast will have a lot more because they had a lot more reenactment things to reenact. But yeah. around here, we have a lot of people who love to do reenactments of like Viking stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh, really cool. Uh, a, wo- a woman I watch on YouTube, she used to be a part of the one closer to Seattle. Oh, cool. And that was the SCA f- near closer to Seattle because she would do, she would make extant garments. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then post videos about it. And her name was Morgan Donner. If you look her up, she doesn't do a lot of that recently, but if you go to her older videos, she makes things like a 14th century Italian gowns and That's things super like cool, that. Yeah. It's really cool. Um, and you can find all these kinds of videos where they're kind of reenacting things, but she actually moved across the country and she was null binding a hat in that video. Oh, no way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's really cool. And she yeah. has a lot of really big, she likes the Viking age type deal yeah. stuff. Who so if you're into things like that, look up her videos. Um, She's really a really nice lady to, like, listen to, I guess. Yeah. But um, if you're interested in more reenactment stuff, look up the SCA around here because they have a lot of really cool documents. That would be cool. Yeah. And I know that they're going to, here in uh, Chehalis, there's going to be a fantasy fair. And the week that I'm saying this, we're recording this on the 22nd, it's happening, I believe, the... I want to say the 26th and 27th. Yeah, so it's coming up. So it's coming up. And so if you're interested in that, kind of keep an eye out. So too late for you guys. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) 
for the next one. For the next one. <laughs> no, but it's a cool way to keep history alive and 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 keep people interested in in all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I'll be going to the fantasy fair, so. <laughs> Maybe we'll we'll see some fans. I'm gonna attach my little Turkish drop spindle to my belt. Oh. I'm gonna have a little bag with some knitting in it. Cute. And something to hold my wallet. <laughs> yeah. your, your big wallet. My big wallet. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that kind of brings us to the end of our rope because we got pretty off topic there for a second. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. <laughs> we just like chatting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this has been Spinning a Yarn's Tale, brought to you by you and I Yarns in Jehalis, Washington. My name's Blair. My name's Denise. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.